Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny with us. Sherry, I'm a kid from the 50s. I probably have been vaccinated with just everything in my system. I probably have the simian monkey virus in me. In those days, it didn't seem like the vaccines were as severe as they are today. Is that a pretty accurate statement? Well, George, I'm not sure that it's about severity. It's about quantity. Up through 1985, there were only three vaccines that were available. Actually, up through, you know, they stopped giving the smallpox routine, vaccine routinely in 1972. Right. And then up through 1985, there was just MMR, polio, and DPT. But it was in 1991 when they started really ramping up the schedule and they introduced the hepatitis B vaccine at birth. They introduced the Hib vaccine at two, four, and six months. And then from there, they added chickenpox, hepatitis A, rotavirus, Prevnar, and the list went on and on to where now children get multiple doses of 17 different vaccines. Oh, my God. And so that's part of where the problem is, is because it's quantity. Now, the MMR vaccine from when it was introduced into the schedule in 1963. Measles, mumps, rubella. Right. Yes, thank okay. you. Measles, rumps, rubella. It's the same vaccine, the same manufacturing process today as it was in 1963. So I don't think it's about the change in severity, but it's definitely about the change in quantity. Interesting take. And how many are there now? Seven, uh, se- there's 17 approved vaccines, currently approved vaccines for children and adolescents, and there are more than 300 in the developmental pipeline, most of which are targeted towards adolescents and adults. And that's where the conversation gets interesting, George, is that many people will say, well, my kids are grown, and thankfully I don't have to worry about those school things anymore, and, you know, my grandkids, those, uh, I'm concerned, but that really isn't my problem. But the big problem is going to be the next push for mandatory vaccination requirements for all adults. They already obviously have done Ooh. it in the military. They've done it to healthcare workers. Now it will be anybody in the public. Now, unless you stay at home and you never leave your house and maybe you work from your computer, your job is always in the public. And so that's where the big flu shot push and mandatory flu shot in exchange for a job. So, and, and they could make the implementation is where it's going to be very difficult. They've already done it once in our society back in the early 1900s when it was the smallpox vaccine where you had to show proof of vaccination to be able to cross state lines. Well, that was a little, that was a little bit easier because you had this big scar on your arm that you were able to show. In Argentina now, they have passed a law back, this was about maybe 18 months ago, that in order to renew your driver's license, to renew your passport, in order to travel, to be able to get federal or federal subsidies, like would be equivalent to our Medicaid, um, you have to have a completed show your papers with a completed vaccination schedule. So that is an implementation arm that they can do. And you know, for years, George, they have kicked kids out of pediatric practices for not being fully vaccinated. Yes, I'm starting to hear that some adults are being kicked out of out of internal medicine practices for refusing flu shots pneumonia shots and shingles vaccines. I can't remember when I got a flu shot, and I haven't had the flu, Sherry, knock on wood, in God knows how long. I can't remember. I did a a retrospective analysis 
on information from the CDC, which every year um, there are 120 centers across the country. So when someone gets some um, what looks like the flu or symptoms of the flu, the deep body aches, the chills, the fever, more than just something that would look like a sinus congestion, if they go into one of those centers, they do a, a throat and a nasal swab, and they send it to the CDC. And the first step of that investigation is testing that swab to see what is causing your infection, what type of virus or bacteria is causing you to be sick. In that first step of the algorithm, only 15% of the time are those swabs positive for influenza viruses. The influenza vaccine is only designed to keep you from getting sick from an influenza virus. So if you believe that it works at all, it's going to work 15% of the time because 85% of the time when you become sick with what looks like influenza, it's some other pathogen and the flu shot would not have done one single thing to keep you from contracting infection from another pathogen that is different than influenza. Which leads me to the, this and explain this logic for us. Some parents who have kids that have been vaccinated don't want those children hanging around kids that have not been vaccinated, what are they concerned about? I mean, if they've been vaccinated, in theory, isn't your child protected against all this stuff? You're absolutely right, George. And it's just, it's one of those propaganda things that the propaganda machine that the pharmaceutical industry is very good at as indoctrinated parents to think that all these unvaccinated kids are just they are just harboring all these infections and they're just going to these pathogens are just going to pounce on them and make their vaccinated kids sick I mean, like, go figure. I always think that, remember back when we were growing up, the, the cartoon characters in Charlie Brown, and remember, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the character Pigpen yep. that was walking around with all the dust and dirt all flowing up around him? Somehow we have this image that that is what an unvaccinated child immune system looks like, that they harbor <laughs> all these viruses and bacteria and just spread everything everywhere. And nothing could be further from the truth because in actuality and with scientific data to back this, up. That's the vaccinated kids that spread pertussis, that can spread influenza, that can, that can shed um, all of these different types of, of viral infections like chicken pox. Um, theoretically, they could spread measles, mumps, rubella. You know, the big outbreak of measles back in 2014, which led to the passage of SB 277 the following year, what they actually found out was that the vast majority of those kids that became ill, it was vaccine strain measles. It wasn't wild strain measles. Well, I was going to say, aren't measles on the uptick all of a sudden? Why? Well, it's really not true. Um, we, We seem to think that there's this huge outbreak of measles that has happened this year in this country. But let's put that number into perspective, George. There have been 1,234 cases of measles um, that have been confirmed and reported to the CDC so far in 2019. Between age 0 and 18 years of age, there are 78 million children in this country in that age group. So 1,000 kids or 1,200 kids who got a cough, a fever, and a rash is not statistically significant. In addition, and this is really important, <clears throat> the measles virus has a three- to five-year life cycle that you will see upticks 
of measles every three to five years, irrespective of vaccination rates. So if 100% of children, adolescents, and adults were vaccinated, you would still see outbreaks of the, of the measles virus every three to four years because those antibodies are fake immunity. It's like fake news. It doesn't last forever. Not every child seroconverts, and you're going to see these upticks every three to five years, which gives the public health officials an opportunity to introduce hysteria. And the same thing is true for pertussis. Every, six, every five to seven years, there is a life cycle of that bacteria that causes pertussis. You'll see a little uptick in the pertussis um, outbreaks, and that gives them an opportunity to introduce hysteria and revaccinate everyone. How much is the vaccine industry worth to big pharma, Sherry? Oh, it's worth a lot, George. When I started doing this back in 2000, at that point in time, the vaccine sector of the pharmaceutical industry was about an $8 billion a year um, industry. And when you think about the pharmaceutical industry, think about it as a big pie diagram with different, with those wedges representing different things. Like there's a wedge for blood pressure medicine, a wedge for diabetes, a wedge for cancer. And so at that point in time, in about 2000, the pharmaceutical, the um, vaccine industry was worth about $8 billion a year globally. It's now worth about 30 to 35 billion dollars globally and they are anticipating that by 2025 which is technically right around the corner that the that globally the vaccine sector will now be worth a hundred billion dollars 100 billion dollars because that will include vaccinate mandatory vaccination for adults now as those, all those vaccines are being given all over the world, these mandatory vaccinations, we all know, George, that a certain percentage of those people are going to be contract a disease, asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, neurological problems, autoimmune disorders. And oh, by the way, the pharmaceutical industry has a huge book of business to sell you all kinds of drugs to take care of those symptoms that were introduced by those vaccines. Jeez. When does it stop, Shuri? When does it stop? Well, I don't know. I think what's happening right now, you know, with this mandatory vaccination push is I believe is, is sort of like their, their last hurrah. As, you know, George, like we said at the beginning of the show, you know, you and I have had these conversations periodically mm-hmm. since 2001. And I've always said that the, to stop the vaccine industry was going to be a ground swell up where parents were going to do their, their own, um, um, uh, investigation. They were going to do their own research and they were going to say, well, wait a minute, a fever, cough, and a rash goes away in seven to ten days, leaves behind a lifetime of immunity versus injection with foreign matter and known substances that can cause chronic lifetime illness. Mm, let me see. I think I'll take my chances with getting my kid to bed on time, making them wash their hands, and taking, eating a good diet and uh, making sure their vitamin D level is up around 80. And so I've always said that more and more parents would refuse the vaccinations. And it got, it was, in my opinion, it was getting to the place where we were kind of reaching a tipping point, that more and more parents were, they, they, I saw published studies that were showing that upwards to 70% of parents were questioning vaccines. And they may not have been refusing all of the vaccines, but they were saying, mm, hepatitis B at birth, no thank you. Hepatitis A, 
We don't have any of that around here. Uh, polio, we have not had polio in the Western Hemisphere since 1991. Why does my kid need four exactly. shots of polio? I mean, do they even have those iron lungs anymore? No, they do not. And the iron those. lung machine was actually just a precursor today's, to today's modern-day ventilator. Exactly. A much, so, much larger so, so, version. Yes. And so now, because people were waking up, doing their own research, were looking around and going, wow, the, the unvaccinated kids, my kids are unvaccinated, and they're never sick. They're not on antibiotics. They're just fine. The pharmaceutical industry said, we can't have that. We can't have a healthy control group out there because sooner or later, somebody's going to put up the 2 to $3 million that it will take to do a really well-designed, well-run a study to compare the health of unvaccinated kids to the health of vaccinated kids. And the pharmaceutical industry said, we can't have that because it will blow up in our faces. It will become so apparent to everyone that the unvaccinated kids are the healthiest kids and we can't have it. And so between money, power, control, um, under, knowing that we have won on the science side, hands down, they will not come to the table and debate us because they have nothing to say except Trump calling us names and disparaging our factual information. Now, look, so, go ahead. So, so it's, so it's gotten to the point where when you're, the answer to your question, when does it stop? It's going to stop when people in this country stand up and say, we're not going to allow our politicians to do this to us. We are, not, we are going to stand in the gap. We're going to stand in our constitutional rights. We're going to change some of the laws. We're going to get rid of, re, re, uh, dis, reinterpret Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and we're going to get rid of that 1986 National Vaccine, Inj Information, National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act, which gives the pharmaceutical companies 100% liability-free products to inject into our bodies, into the body of our children. That's when it's going to stop. Let me ask you about fevers, too, because why do people try to suppress fevers when it's supposed to be the body's natural way of fighting an infection? I think, again, it's the propaganda machine, and I think that pediatricians don't help that matter uh, uh, very much. They don't instruct parents on the importance of fever. In fact, George, I have a little ebook that I've written. It's called The Importance of Fever, and if huh. anybody wants to email me at courses, the number four mastery, coursesformastery at gmail.com, or they can go to our website, coursesformastery.com, and send me a little email. I will send you a free ebook on the importance of fever because parents think that if, that if the fever starts to go up, it will go from 99 to 100 to 104 to 110 to 120, and the kid's going to spontaneously combust right in front of them. And they don't understand how important it is for long-term health, for the introduction and the wake-up of the Th1 and the Th2, both arms of the immune system that need to talk to each other in the presence of fever to make your immune system strong for life. And if you suppress the fever, then aren't you making that infection last even longer? Making it last even longer, yes, and causing an entire cascade of problems by not allowing the body to purge itself of the pathogen that has gotten in there and is causing the and is turning up the heat. What's happening around the world with uh, vaccines? 
Well, it's pretty interesting what's happening in Europe. In fact, I just got back from Europe um, last week. I was there on um, some business, a little bit of vacation, and I spoke at two conferences. One conference was in Slovenia and uh, to about 70 activists there who are very much on fire, and they all understand that they have got to stand up for their rights and stop these mandatory vaccination laws. I've heard the same stories from, from people in Germany and Poland and Italy and France. On the Isle of Man, they're putting forth a really big campaign to stop the Gardasil vaccine in everyone, but particularly in boys. Um, around the world, people are standing up and saying, this is not right. And the other thing about the mandates that make them so egregious, George, is that we will pass mandatory laws saying that these kids have to, are required to get these set of vaccines. Well, now once we introduce mandatory vaccination, it's just an open checkbook and an open door to any other vaccines down the road that they want to make requirements. So in, in Europe, um, they're on fire, and they have an organization there that represents 25 different countries. They are really starting to get more organized to say, we, we're not going to allow this to happen to our children. We're not going to let governments roll over our kids so that we have chronically unhealthy next generation. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.